Okay. At Forest, we have a regular schedule for Sunday sermons in order to have a balanced nourishment in God's Word. In spring, we study the Gospels. In summer, we study Old Testament. So last three summers, we studied uh, a story of Exodus, and story of Joshua, and the story of Judges. And in the fall, we studied the New Testament letters. For summer 2019, it's my great pleasure to share with you story of Ruth, Hannah, and Samuel. Ruth, Hannah, and Samuel. For the next four weeks, we will explore the book of Ruth. Why four weeks? Because book of Ruth has four chapters. And book of Ruth is a short book, but don't underestimate its size as its significance. The book is a short but deep. It's a brief but so beautiful that I hope it will stay in your heart for a long time as it has been in my heart. Ruth is one of my favorite books in the Bible, especially because this book is the only book named after Gentile woman. Gentile woman, think about that. And this Gentile woman is not a beautiful foreign princess like uh, Princess Jasmine and Aladdin, but it's uh, less than a common ordinary. She was despised Moabite widow. In the days to come, I'll share more about the significance of the book of Ruth. For now, I just want us to understand one important truth and fact about the Bible, especially about Old Testament. Though Old Testament is a Jewish book, it's not only for Jewish people. It's an inclusively human book. It is the story of everybody. Jewish people are the first people of God, not the last people of God. Amen? I entitled our study of the book of Ruth, Love in Ruthless Time. Love in Ruthless Time. This title is a contrasting love with a ruthless time. Yes, I'm making pun with the word Ruth. And what is a ruthless? Webster Dictionary defines ruthless without pity, compassion, cruel, merciless, remorseless, remorseless, remorseless. While the linguists debate the etymological origin of the ruthless, we can definitely connect the biblical name to ruthless. If we, we don't have Ruth like a heart, that means if we are ruthless in our heart, we become cruel. By the way, how many of you know somebody named Ruth? Oh, okay, raise your hand. Most of you know somebody named Ruth. I, I, I'm actually, let me know if any Ruth that you know is a mean and cruel, please let me know. Because in my entire life, I, those, you know, a few Ruth that I met, they are all sweet and caring people. I still remember the first Ruth that I met at Witten College during my summer study back in undergrad. And uh, this Midwestern girl, she was an education major, and she was studying education to become a missionary teacher in orphanage in China. How many people come to college to become 
a teacher in orphanage. And the story of Ruth is a very surprising because it happened in the times or period of the judges. And those of us who studied the book of Judges last summer, we remember how sad and bad and mad the time was. It's one of the darkest times in the history of Israel. There is a story of Ruth. Beautiful, beautiful. This small book is refreshing with a hope, like an oasis in desert. So you will see, hopefully, in our website, that uh, I asked uh, uh, Mariel, my daughter, and to find a graphic with a flower in a desert. Flower in a desert. That, that symbolizes the book of Ruth. Now, love in the Ruth story means love of uh, multiple dimensions in the fullest sense of the word. It is not only a romantic love between a widow and an older man, widow and old man, but a loyal care between a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Surprise friendship between Gentile and Jew, and ultimately the story of a God story, God's restoring love for somebody who almost lost faith in him. This short story, many biblical scholars and Jewish rabbis think that the, uh, this, is, this is a sort of a God's counter-argument to the story of the judges. Whenever there is a bad news, God always surprises us the good news. And the book of Judges, if you remember, it is a book of a compromise and regress of a faith, whereas a book of Ruth is a story of commitment and progress of a faith. Today, the first chapter or first act of the story sets the context where we find the most destitute people in life. They are none other than three desperate widows and their life condition, especially their choices they make at the crossroad of their life teaches us a lot. So let me, first of all, bring the context. So let me read uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 to uh, 7. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from the Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married a Moabite woman, one named Orpha, the other Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both Malone and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without two sons, uh, left without two sons and her husbands. When Naomi heard in Moab that Lord had come to aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out to the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. This introduction 
can be summed up in this way, bad to worse and to the worst. Bad to worst and worst. This is a story of a perfect, horrible storm. So what's a bad? Bad thing is a famine. Famine. And uh, we don't, none of us here understand what famine is. But uh, famine is a serious problem, even today, and much worse in ancient times. So in one biblical commentator said, when average American says, I'm starving, it is a prelude to midnight raid on the well-stocked refrigerator or a sudden trip to the nearest fast food restaurant. Ancient people, it's a totally different story. Famine, I'm starving, means death. And ironically, famine happened where? Bethlehem. You know what the Bethlehem literally means? House of bread. In the house of bread, there was no bread. And there was a bad famine. They have to go to migrate. And again, famine and migration is a very common theme in the Bible. Do you remember people went to other countries because of famine? Do you remember some names? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all went. And the place they went was not just another country. It's a country called the Moab. We need to know a little bit about Moab because, you know, that Ruth was a Moabite. And about the Moab, we need to look at the Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 8. So let me read quickly about how Israelites thought about the Moabite. So <clears throat> Deuteronomy 23, Moses told the Israelite that no Ammonite or Moabite, they are kind of uh, related. They are the descendant of Lot and, uh, and then his daughters. And any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Not even 10th generation. If you have a Bible, hopefully you underline. Not in the 10th generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. That means Exodus. Instead, they hired a Balaam, son of a bear, from the pathway in Aram, Naharim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loves you. And verse 6, do not seek treaty or of a friendship with them as long as you live. And then verse 7, Moses kind of uh, gives an interesting uh, command. Do not despise an Edomite, that is, uh, as descendant of Esau. And Edomite are related to you. Do not despise an Egyptian. Because you resided there as a foreigners in their country. Third generation of third generation children born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. You know, Jewish people are all very suspicious and antagonistic against the Gentile. But according to Moses, he doesn't mind them interacting with the Egyptians and the Edomites, and especially third, fourth generation, they can mingle. But when it comes to Moabite, what did Moses say? Not even 10th generation. Don't ever mingle with them or interact with them. And today, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and two sons migrating into the land of Moab means they are so desperate. 
They're going to a place where Moses said, don't deal with them ever. So that's the bad news. Now this bad news become a worse. There, verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. The head of a household died. Not long after they arrived in Naomi, the Naomi's husband died. And she became a widow and single mother in the foreign country. And now, what could be worse? Yeah, there's one more bad news. Verse 4, her two sons married a Moabite woman, one named Orpah, the other one Ruth. And then 10 years later, without bearing any offspring, both sons, Malon and Kilon, died. And once again, Bible repeated, Naomi was left without her two sons and husband. It's sort of a telling us Naomi is having the worst life situation anybody can imagine. Naomi was so heartbroken that verse 21, she said, I went away full. When I left Israel, I went away full with a husband and two sons. But now Lord has brought me back empty. Why you call me Naomi? Lord has afflicted me. Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Three times Naomi claimed her misery was caused by God. God was after me. He's punishing me. He's punching me. Not once, twice, three times. Naomi's story is almost like the story of Job. Do you know the book of Job? Another Gentile story, right? He lost first, what? Wealth, then children, and then a health, right? Perfect storm of misfortune. This is what Naomi is going through. Now, so Naomi left without husband and sons and just with the two Moabite daughters-in-law. Now, if you are one of these three widows, how would you live? How would you respond to the worst situation of your life? You know, Job's wife told Job that at times like that, you just curse God and die. That's what Job's wife said. Today, we will see three different responses and choices at the crossroad of these widows. And from their choices, you and I, we can learn an important truth that even at the worst situation, even when we feel like all the options gone, no hope is no hope isn't around us, we still can do the will of God and we can glorify God and we can experience God's power and love. Amen? So, we're going to look at the three widows at the crossroad and each one of them quickly. So for that, we're going to read verse 8 to 18 responsibly. Verse 8 to 18 has a three round of a conversation between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. So are you ready? So brothers will read a verse, uh, even number of verses, and sisters follow, okay? So brothers, we go first. Here we go, one, two, three. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show your kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And said to her, we will go back with you to your people. 
Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I have, I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight. And then he gave a birth to sons. At this they wept aloud, then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. When Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So first we'll look at the Naomi. Naomi represents a sad widow, sad widow. Naomi here instructed Ruth and Orphar to go back home, each to their mother's house. This expression is very uncommon in the Old Testament because usually we, we call this, you know, father's house. And some, so, so some ancient, you know, uh, Greek and Syriac manuscript have the word. They actually change the text from mother's house to father's house. So some uh, scholars wonder why. Why she used the word mother's house instead of a, you know typical father's house? Maybe some some scholars think the Book of Ruth. The main the characters of the Book of Ruth is to depict the woman as a hero of a faith. So it's a very feminist book. So feminist, do we have a feminist here? Like me? Do we have any feminists among brothers here? If you are a biblical Christian, you should be the feminist, by the way. But that's another story. I'm sorry. And there's something that a term actually expresses the tenderness of a home, you know, mother. You know, when you think about home, you know, usually you think about mother, right? Mother's food, you know, you know, mother's welcome, and yeah. Uh, about their ages, we are not sure, but uh, people think it's a, probably, a, you know, Ruth is, a, I mean, not Ruth, Naomi is about 45, because, you, you know, when you are a teen, that's when you get married, and she has two sons, and they are grown up, they got married, and they live 10 years, so when you add up all this, you know, you know, Naomi was about 40, early 40s. And you know, her daughter-in-laws, they are 20s, you know, mid-20s, early 20s. Now, in the midst of all tragedy and affliction, Naomi actually said that God afflicted me. Naomi remembered to do a last kind act to her daughter's-in-law. Naomi has a misery, but she did not want to share her misery with others. You know, a lot of times we hear the terms like misery loves company. It doesn't apply to Naomi. In her tragedy, Naomi was not completely swallowed up by sadness and saturated with a self-pity like, woe to me, I'm the, you know, I am the, I, you know, I'm the most beautiful person. But what did Naomi do? Naomi remembered kindness 
and she chose path of kindness. The word kindness here, I hope you have a Bible underlined because actually word kindness is not a good English translation. It's a Hebrew word called chesed, chesed, which other Bible translate the loving kindness. This is almost like a New Testament version of agape, unconditional, committed, you know, un unfailing, you know, ever faithful love. So some Bible translate the loving kindness. You know, when people in, in their difficult situation, most people throw the pity party, right? And they invite other people. Naomi didn't throw the pity party. Who could have, you know, throw the pity party, I mean, invite the pity party or pity party better than fellow widows? But she said, you guys, I'm done. But you have a chance. And take your chance. Have a, I hope God give you a second chance for life. Go and live. Some scholars think that this is an incredible uh, act of uh, self-sacrifice because Naomi simply saying that once you leave me and return to your, you know, return to your mother's house or your, your own respective family, as long as I'm not in the picture, people don't know who, you know, your linkage, your past is completely gone. As long as you are with me, people constantly remember that you are once married or you, whoever your husband was. So I'm your baggage, and I don't want to be baggage. Move on. Live your life. That's what Naomi did. And she has no savings. She has no, you know, alternate. She, you know, she's too old enough. She's too old to have a husband. This was a total self-sacrifice. At the last minute, she did act of kindness. You know who reminds me of this? Jesus on the cross. While he was dying on the cross, he forgave everyone. He even saved one next to him. You know, Naomi did an act of kindness. And the amazing thing about Naomi, you know, actually, I'm going to, since most of you don't take a note and you'll forget my sermon within a month, I'm going to bring back this, this I'm going to preach on this. Because while I was praying, I said, man alive, this is a great, great, great truth that I just hear as a sub-point. Because, you know, look at the verse 9 when Naomi said, uh, verse 8 said, May the Lord show you kindness as you shown kindness to your dead husbands and me. May the Lord grant each one of you find the rest in the home of your husband. Naomi didn't brag about our kindness to daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-laws. Naomi didn't say, you know, I'm a such a great mother-in-law, I'll let you go free. Thank me later. That's not how she did. You know, first thing she did was, you are so kind to me. Thank you. And I pray that God will repay your kindness to you. You know, here, I, I, I have a lot, this is actually, here's a wisdom and principle of a healthy family relationship and all human friendship. That is, Naomi was grateful. Even though she knew that her situation is really bad. By the way, emotionally, she was not clueless. She knows that her situation. She was mad at God. She said, God, you know, you attacked me. You afflicted me. 
So she is not emotionally clueless, okay? She's not romantic or sentimental. She knows her dire situation. Yet, Naomi remembered kindness happened to her. She was a grateful. This a humble, grateful mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. They kind of love each other. You know, she loved them truly that she actually told them twice to go home, right? Not once. Think about that. If Naomi has been horrible mother-in-law, do you think Orpha and uh, Ruth would just, uh, you know, they, they, they would say, oh, no, no, we will go with you? You know, when she first said that, he said, thank God we have a chance to live, and they bought it. Naomi was not a mean, scary monster-in-law. She was really, really loving, caring, grateful, humble mother-in-law. And uh, twice, and in case of Ruth, three times, she asked, go back, live your life, don't worry about me. This last act of kindness. Do you have a relationship like that? Do you have a Naomi in your life? Or are you more importantly, can you be like Naomi to other people? You know, here is, uh, here once again, I see the important implication and application for all of us. You know, faith that doesn't really touch family members is not a true faith. Look at the biblical faith here. It starts at home. The relationship between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, all the dramas that you saw in the whatever, you know, in the Korean drama or Netflix or TV or whatever, you don't see here. There is a genuine care, mutual gratitude in mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. I think that's real faith. You know, faith that is not practiced at home, according to the Bible, is not really trustworthy faith. If you look at the first Timothy and Titus, all the biblical qualification for spiritual leaders in the church, such as the elders and bishops and deacons, it all starts at home. Faith is domestic as well as uh, ecclesial or church. Faith and family goes together. You know, oftentimes Christians sacrifice one or the other. We put the spiritual family above the physical family or physical family above the spiritual family. Both family and church are the agent, major agent of God's kingdom, like a right arm and left arm must go together. And that's what we try to do with the house church. Why do you think we're doing house church? It's not just another small group ministry. That's where we want to really examine our life at house and our daily relationship with one another. And above all, we want our children to see how we practice faith. So for us, house church is the New Testament model. It's a great God's wisdom to bring a faith and family and church in the perfect harmony. And we see one example here in Naomi. Naomi, she practiced her faith with her two daughters-in-law. Amen? You know, I hope 
We are all loved not by strangers through our great magnanimous act, but we are loved by own family members and friends and weekly, daily, small acts of kindness. Yes, that's a family. I don't know about you, I hope in your family mealtime, I hope you discuss about spiritual matters. Because that's what God created us to be as a family of God. Let me move on to second widow, the main character, Ruth. Ruth, verse 14 said, when Orpha kissed and goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And the word clung, or clings, it actually came from the Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember when God created a man and woman, and then when they you know, met for the first time, and then they got married? Genesis 2.24 said, Therefore man lives his father and his mother, and what? Clings to his wife. Clings to his wife. This word clings in the Old Testament is a language of a new loyalty. Before you get married, you're loyal and committed to your parents. But now, after marriage, you find a new loyalty, new high priority, that is your spouse. This is a language of loyalty. And when Naomi said, do not tell me to leave you, the word leave is actually means abandoning, forsaking. It's actually very strong implication of a, you know, you know, changing once again loyalty. I'm not changing my loyalty from you. That's what Ruth is saying. And uh, Naomi said third time, third time Naomi said, Ruth, look at your sister-in-law Orpha. Just as she went, went back to her people and her gods, go back with her. When Naomi said, go back to your people and your gods, it actually implies the great cost and sacrifice that Ruth has to pay if she followed Naomi. It's not just a moving to new city. You have to change your people, your identity, and your religion. And Ruth knows better than anybody about the Jewish faith. Jewish people believe in Yahweh, the one and only God. Here is Israel, Lord your God is one. Whereas a Moabite, they believed in many, many gods, or polytheists. Their main god was Chemosh, Chemosh, which actually accepted as a child sacrifice. They used to burn the child. So children, be careful. You know, if you're born, I mean, forget it. Sorry, bad, bad job. You know, Moabite, there's a Moabite god, Kimosh. And she knows that Israelites are not a polytheist. You go there, you, you have to follow Yahweh, one and only God. And so, Naomi was said, Ruth, you know, what you, you know what you're just trying to do? It's too much. You cannot do that. I mean, it's too much. You, know, the, the, you don't know what you, 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 what you are doing. Go back to your people and your gods. Rest of the you know, uh, book of Ruth, 
Five times Ruth was mentioned as the Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. Once she returned to Israel, everybody said, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. And then what did Ruth say? One of the most beautiful statements of faith comes out here. Ruth said, verse 16. This is so beautiful. Let's read together. I just, let's read together. 16 and 17 and okay? Ready, go. One, two, three. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. You know, Jewish tradition, Ruth was remembered paradigmic example of a conversion. Paradigmic example of a conversion. And Jewish rabbi, they love this story and this commitment of Ruth that they actually uh, uh, create a catechism of a proselyte after Ruth's confession. So Gentiles, when he decided to follow God of Israel, they repeat the Ruth's you know, confession. This, and sometimes, you know, they kind of, you know, uh, they made it long, you know, I mean, but a main frame comes from here. And Jewish rabbis, they say, amazing thing about Ruth is this. Ruth, confession, very similar to who? Abraham. So Jewish tradition, Ruth is a female version of Abraham. Because Abraham also left his family, relatives, everything, and went too far, right? Went to wherever God commanded him. But at least Abraham received God's revelation. If you look at the Old Testament, God revealed to Abraham while he was in the Ur of Chaldea, the other side of Euphrates River. Abraham had a divine revelation to follow. Ruth has no divine revelation, yet made the same commitment just like Abraham. So Jewish rabbis, they're talking about who they debated, who has a greater faith, Abraham, Ruth, hand down, is Ruth. And about the Ruth's commitment, everything is amazing, but especially when she said, when you die, I will die. Where you die, I will die. You know what that means? She said, my commitment to you is not conditional. I'm not going to serve you until you die, and then once you die, I'm going to go back to my family. That's not what she said. Even after you die, I'll stay there, and then I'll be buried. In ancient culture, burial is the ultimate sign of your belongingness, your loyalty. That's why Joseph, when the prime minister of Israel, uh, the Egypt, when he died and then he could probably bury it in the, uh, one of the pyramids, what did he say? His last will was, someday God will take you back to the promised land and take my bones with you and bury me where my grandfather and everybody else was buried. That's the burial is your ultimate sign of your identity. And today, Ruth was saying that I will bury where Naomi Mother, where you are going to bury it. You know what Ruth is telling? 
I'm not just following you. I'm going to choose new identity. And I'm going to follow you to the end. This story of Ruth once again reminds, uh, reminds me of somebody who did a great identity change for you and me. In order to serve us and save us, Jesus chose to be human. The second person of the Trinity decided to come to our world, migrate to our world. And he became a full human birth to death. He chose new identity, human identity. The Almighty God, the creator of the universe, became a human. In the early church writing, they constantly describe Jesus as what? God, man, God, man, God, man. That's what their common, common you know, designation of Jesus. Because Jesus, the second person of Trinity, chose a human identity to be our savior. Amen, hallelujah. Ruth became a migrant for the sake of mercy. She chose a new identity. She changed her ethnicity, everything. She's willing to be marginalized in the new country, all for the sake of love. And this is why it's a great name. We have many children. I hope that those of you who have daughters in the future, I hope we want to have some Ruth in our church. So far, nobody named after Ruth. I want to see some Ruth. Now, we have one more person to go. And that person's name is Orpha. So Naomi is a sad widow. Ruth is a good widow. What is Orpha then? Orpha is not a bad widow. She is average widow. She's average. She's average. Look at the verse 14. Second time when Naomi told them to return to your home, at this they wept loud and offered kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Do you see the way that uh, the writer of the book of Ruth presented uh, uh, Orpha? Orpha is a basically minor character to highlight the main character, Ruth. Orpha said goodbye to Naomi, but Ruth clung to Naomi. So that's, that's the last time we heard about Ofa. Ofa. And I want to say clearly, Ofa is not a villain. It's not a bad character. Ofa is a, you know, just another very sad you know, widow, had a difficulty in life, and we, nobody can throw a stone to Ofa. Okay? I want to be clear. Ofa is not a negative character at all. Just average. Just average. And the here, to me, in this passage, as I reflect the author's choice, that really, really made me think. Think about this. Ruth and Ophah had the same predicament, same situation, same crisis, same problem, same mother-in-law, same in everything. The choice was so different. The trajectory of life was so different. One chose convenience, 
the other chose compassion. When I meditate on this, it reminds me of a, that's a story of a story of many of us here. We hear the same word of God. We believe the same Jesus. We, same, we see the same cross. But some Christians chose that a life of a convenience. Some chose a life of a commitment. Same house church. Same people. Same unbearable members. Some chose to love. Some chose to criticize behind. Average. If you like an average, offer is your person. I'm a Baylor bear. I didn't go undergrad, I went to grad school, but I still, I, I claim to be a Baylor bear. And uh, I love to see new Baylor bear. And we have new Baylor bears, David Cook. David, do you know Baylor University's model? Okay. <laughs> Thank you for saying no, because if you say yes, I'll be very impressed because, you know, most you know, college students, they don't know the model of their school. But Baylor's official model is a pro-ecclesia, pro-Texana. For the church, for Texas. You know why for Texas? Because when Baylor was established in 1948, it was the first university in the state of, of the state, Republic of Texas. Back then, Texas was country. So that's why, instead of for the country, pro-Texana, right? Now, if a Baylor was uh, you know, established uh, later when Texas joined to the Union, it would be pro-Ecclesia and pro-Americana instead of Texana, right? But that's official. You know what I like, a new kind of uh, model of a Baylor these days, David? That is above beyond. I love that unofficial one. Baylor's motto is above beyond. We want faith and scholarship above beyond. Yes. So that's why I'm so proud of. Yes, God answered my prayer. My theological reconstruction was well done, above beyond my expectation at Baylor. Yeah, I'm proud of Baylor Bears. I'm not proud of the football, but I'm proud of, you know, Baylor Bears. But point is this. What, 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 what is above beyond? If you like average, above beyond doesn't mean to you much. But if you are born of a child of God, if you know God is God Almighty is your Father, you don't want to be average. Do you compliment your kid when they do average? Oh, you passed the test? Good. Wow, wonderful. Do you celebrate the average? I mean, don't we all celebrate excellence and encourage excellence among our children, you know, with our children? Why? Because we love them, we're willing to help them, we put our resources for them, right? God didn't spare, but he sacrificed his only son for you and me, and he gave his Holy Spirit who brought the cosmos out of chaos. And we, you and I, are content to being an average religious person? That is offensive. Offensive to the gospel. It might be okay with everyone else in this world, but not to true disciples of Jesus Christ. Because God didn't just love us. God so loved us that he gave his own life for us.
So, dear brothers and sisters, are you offer or are you rude? Are you going to follow the, the path of a convenience and self-interest, or are you going to follow the path of a commitment, a confession, and sacrifice? You know, our church is an unofficial model that we adopted and we want to catch fast. You know what that is? Suman is, oh, Suman left. Our motto, well, our church's you know, slogan is the, uh, to be a good ship to Jesus and to be a good shepherd to others. But in order to do that, we want to be, we want to, we want to be a uh, give, suffer, and die. Yeah, that's the real motto of our church. And my, I guess my, uh, we're in trouble. People who are streaming our worship is, is battery dead. So I'm, I, I take this as a God's cue to close my sermon. You're happy, huh? Okay, let's read a conclusion, verse 19 to 22. Let me read fast. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told me. Call me Mara, because Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. Almighty has brought the misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by the Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem, as a barley harvest was beginning. When Ruth, I mean Naomi came back, you know then the word Naomi means a pleasant. And then Ruth said, when people were excited, that, wow, we haven't seen you for how many years? And then, you know, they're all talking and then, and Naomi said, don't call me Naomi, pleasant. Nothing pleasant in my life. My experience of life was so sad and call me Mara, which means bitter. Bitter. My life is a nothing pleasant, but everything bitter. Bitter. And here, verse 22. I really like this expression of verse 22, the concluding verse in chapter 1. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by the Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, without husband, without son. Total loser. Arriving in Bethlehem as a barley harvest was beginning. And you can tell, harvest. They left the Bethlehem because of lack of food. Now harvest is coming. You know the good things is around the corner. You know, when God brought her back empty, God was not torturing her. God was saying, Naomi, you are in it for surprise. I'm going to embrace you in the most incredible way. You think your life is bitter? I can make it pleasant again. More than pleasant ever. And then the daughter-in-law that you loved will be better than seven sons. I'm giving you already a clue to the end of the conclusion. But point is this. Naomi thought her life was done. It's not until God said it's done. God loves us. Some of us are going through some very difficult times in life right now. You feel like your options are very limited. 
you, whatever you know, discouragement you have, let me tell you one thing clearly. You follow God, God will fill you up better than ever, better than you originally you know, planned. Now we're going to sing a dedication song, I Will Follow. This is a song that we sang many times. But I want to tell you, I, I want us to recognize this. So, Sean, let's read that song before we read together. One, two, three. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Where you move, I'll move. I'll follow. All your ways are good. All your ways are sure. I will trust in you alone. Higher than my side, higher above my life, I'll trust in your Lord. Ruth's words to Naomi was a one human to another. This song is a us to Christ. If Ruth could follow Naomi with this kind of a commitment, you and I, we should follow Christ to the end. Amen? Let's all stand to sing this song as dedication.